You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with John. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Annie. Really good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I'm so excited about it. Um, so why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol? Where did it all start for you? Oh, wow. Well, I'm I'm half Irish. My dad's my dad's Irish. Um, and, you know, alcohol's just kind of always been around, just always, always been around, you know, like from a very, very young age. I remember being in bars and clubs, you know, when it was still legal to smoke and you were kind of like, just underneath the smoke kind of halo you could kind of see the smoke above and you know running around as a kid and everybody drinking seeming to be happy enjoying themselves you know partying and I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland you know and absolutely loved everything about Ireland everything about the Irish people you know everything about my family I've got a great family I've got a really huge family got massive loads and loads of cousins um, but even at a young age, we used to go to Ireland and they used to have a teenage disco, which was actually in a nightclub. Um, and that used to go on until like two in the morning. And you could go there when you were like 12 and 13. Um, and we would all kind of get the older boys to buy the alcohol, you know, like a, a couple of days beforehand. We'd hide it somewhere like in a graveyard or something like that. And we'd wait until, you know, the teenage disco was going to happen. and then you know go down the graveyard find our stash and and get blind drunk before we went into this teenage disco that like literally it would sell just lemonade but everybody in there was completely drunk right because all the teenagers would all make sure that they had their alcohol stash before they before they kind of went out so that was kind of my first experience of alcohol was probably kind of you know maybe when I was like 12 13 and even when I was like 11, I had a job in a working men's club picking up glasses. So I was always kind of around alcohol. And it was one of them weird things, you know, just it was just so normal back then, you know, to have kids going around picking up the glasses in a, in a bar. Over here, we have these things called working men's clubs. They're not so popular anymore, but they were kind of like, you know, you all had to be members to be in them and the whole family would kind of go. And it was that kind of environment. So you know, alcohol was just around from a really, really young age. And I suppose you you kind of grow up thinking, wow, I want that. Like, you know, it's, it's one of them things. It's like when you're 18, you're going to be able to do it. And you're like, oh, damn, I've got so many years to wait until I'm 18 until I can do that thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was quite a, I was quite a nervous child when I was younger. I was quite a quite nervous I'm quite still quite a nervous grown-up right but I hold it I, I hide that better but as I you know when I was younger um I was quite nervous about you know my sexuality and stuff like that as I was kind of growing up and even though I used to go you know I had loads of girlfriends and stuff when I was in my teens and when I was younger there was always something that wasn't quite right um and I remember you know when I got to about the age of 11 there was a, a campaign in the UK, right? This is like 1987. And there was this big, massive public health campaign about AIDS, right? And over here, they had like this huge like gravestone and this gravestone fell down and it's like AIDS, it's killing people, you know? And, and around that time, everyone was kind of, 
you know, it's it's gay it's gay people that die of this thing. Gay people just die of it, you know, and, and gay men having sex, men having sex with men is what makes you get AIDS, right? And that's what kills you. So kind of at the age of 11, when I was kind of thinking there's something different about me, I was also thinking, well, you know, this is a really kind of, this would be a really scary thing to happen, you know, if you were to kind of think about being with boys, right? And I got to about 13, 14, and actually my mum's younger brother, he actually come out and he was only, he was only like seven years older than me. Um, so we were kind of kids together as well. And as he grew up, he kind of, he came out and I just knew that the kind of the dynamics in our family had changed. You know, there was a, a sense that, you know, people weren't happy, you know, Christmas and stuff wasn't the same. It was, it all kind of changed. And I was kind of growing up. I wasn't even told, like I wasn't told that he'd come out, but I knew that he'd come out, right? I knew that the, that it had happened because I kind of knew that he was gay anyway. And no, but nobody would mention it. No one would say anything about it. And I suppose I, I knew all of that family stuff was going on and I didn't, I didn't want to be in the same position as him, right? I didn't want to kind of feel like, I was going to come out one day or I was going to be gay or was it or, or, or am I gay or am I straight or you know all of these things are going through my head when I'm like 13 14 um and when I got to about 17 18 um he actually got sick and like nobody would say you know what was wrong with him or why he was sick and it was you know and I kind of knew what was going on I kind of I kind of got the gist that he'd got HIV you know, there was there was little things like my nan would have a separate, separate, separate section for his cup and his plate and stuff like that in in the kitchen. And it was it was just because around that time there was so much fear and so much misunderstanding about HIV and like what it actually was and how you got it that, you know, for me being that age, I was kind of petrified about everything to do with it. Right. And it was kind of like if this if this thing is me, if I'm if I'm gay, then I've just got to bury this. So I I cannot, I can't do this. I can't, I can't come out because look at how my family has all reacted to my uncle, right? Look at how they've all kind of they've they've all behaved towards him. So I I literally just carried on. You know, I went to college, I went to Camp America, I did all of these fun things. You know, we did loads of drinking, we did all of that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I was about twenty one. And I actually worked for Dunkin' Donuts in the UK. Um, I used to manage their Piccadilly Circus store. And this guy started, this new guy started. And all the managers went out for drinks one day. And this guy was kind of making these little innuendos and stuff. And there was this very forthright woman and she from Poland or somewhere like that. And she's like, what are you trying to tell us? You gay or something? She's like, just tell us. And this guy went, yeah, I'm gay. And then he looked at me and he went, and he's gay too. And I went, no, I am not. No, I'm not. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I had a go at the guy. No, I'm not. No way. And he was like, oh, okay, I thought you were. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. So anyway, the night went on and he, uh, it ended up with just me and him at the end of the night. And I said to him, you know what, you know what you said earlier? You know what you said about me being gay? Well, I think I might be. And literally we were in Piccadilly Circus and this guy went, right, 
you're coming with me. And we literally went into every bar in Soho. And that was it. I'd found my place, right? I was like, wow, I'm here. I'm doing what I think, you know, that I wanted to do for so long. And <laughs> me and him actually ended up down an alleyway, like having a little kiss and the binman kind of catching us and stuff like that. And it was like, it was like the most exciting day of my life. In the morning, the realisation was, oh, my God, now everyone's going to hate you. You know, now, if you're actually going to do this thing and you're actually going to come out, like people are not going to like you anymore. You're now, you know, you're now kind of got a target on your back. Do you know what I mean? And that's where my drinking really escalated. You know, I went from being somebody who probably, you know, maybe went out every weekend, every couple of weeks to somebody who went out every single night and drank every single night and got drunk constantly. And as that progressed, it was kind of, it started with alcohol and then obviously the party drugs were around. So then it went on to ecstasy, speed, you know, all of those kind of things. And I just, although I was having the time of my life, and I really was, right? I was having the time of my life because I'd come out. I was this party kid. I was a drag queen. I was, you know, I did all these amazing things. But at the same time, you were completely hiding who you were to most of the world all the time, including my parents, you know. So my my mum and dad didn't know that at that point that I was gay. And then sadly, everything kind of, everything came to a head all at the same time. So my uncle actually passed away. He passed away at, at the age of 28. He had, he had developed full-blown AIDS and he died of AIDS-related, you know, an AIDS-related illness. Um, and I was coming out at the same time. I just met my first boyfriend. Um, and my parents still didn't know, right? So, so I'm kind of in this kind of limbo world of, oh shit, now what's going to happen? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's going to happen if my mum and dad find out? You know, my mum's just lost her brother and they, you know, they've just lived through this horrendous thing with him dying from, from uh, eventually it was cancer that actually killed him. So I suppose around that time I was really stuck I was kind of really happy that I'd come out, but I was I was stuck in this limbo and drinking a lot and partying a lot and doing loads of drugs. And eventually um, I went out one day and with a friend, we went to a bar. My dad was there with this with his other friend and uh, this guy was completely drunk and he kind of tapped my dad and he said, you see that guy over there? He's a fairy, like to my dad. And my dad's kind of gone... Like, that's my son. What are you talking about? And the guy's kind of caught himself and he's kind of gone, oh, sorry, John. Sorry, John. Like, And then about 20 minutes later, he said exactly the same thing to my dad. So my dad followed me. We we left and my dad followed me and he asked me and I, I came out and I told my dad. And all that I was thinking was going to happen, like, because because of my uncle coming out, because of the way the family reacted, because of the kind of, you know, because of everything. I was waiting to be rejected. I was waiting to be rejected by my family. And as we were walking up the road, my dad said to me, he said, he said, look, it's okay. We love you. You know, it's all right. It's okay. And I said, well, I've got a boyfriend. And my dad said, I never want to meet anybody that you're with. Mm -hmm. 
And in that moment, those words that came out of his mouth, I never want to meet anybody you're with. I made that mean, you don't want to be part of my life. And then literally for the next, probably for the next nine, 10 years, we had a relationship, but we didn't have a close relationship, you know, and I love my dad to bits and I love my mum to bits. And, you know, and this story gets better, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, I don't want to make them out as bad people. They're really good parents. You know, they just, it was just hard for them to deal with all of this happening at once, you know, and it was hard for me to deal with. And during that nine years, I suppose, I kind of felt like I was okay. You know, I I did okay jobs. I worked uh, like retail manager. I was earning okay money for my age. I used to party hard. I used to, you know, still do recreational drugs. So I used to, used to go raving a lot. You know, I don't know if you have so many raves in, in the state. Yeah, it was kind of big over here, like people breaking into buildings and bringing in sound systems and stuff like that. And I was a big raver and I thought everything was okay with my life. Like I just thought it was fine. It was okay. And I was, I, I found myself helping other people. My friend got cancer. I moved in with her for a year. You know, I, I, my next boyfriend was a heroin addict. I tried to help him get off of heroin. You know, all of these things happened until I eventually realized that a lot of that stuff had to do with me not actually dealing with my relationship with my dad and dealing with my relationship with my parents. So when I was about, it was about 28, 29, um, I did the Landmark Forum. Like Landmark, Landmark Education was just like an amazing epiphany for me, right? It was the first time that I'd actually heard about the, the kind of idea of being 100% responsible for your life. You know, one of the things they encourage you do, to do in the Landmark Forum is wherever you have a lack of power in any relationship in your life, is to actually completely become responsible for what happened and go back to the person who you lost the power with and basically apologize to them, right? So it's quite a hard thing to do, right? My my dad was obviously the problem, you know, in my world up until then, my dad was the problem and it was up to him to fix it, right? And when I kind of understood this principle of being 100% responsible, I kind of looked at it a different way and thought, well, how how can I be responsible for this? And I phoned my dad up. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I phoned him up and I was like, Dad, I need to talk to you about something. And he was like, what? And I was like, do you remember like nine years ago, we were walking down the road that day, you know, that day that, you know, you found out that I was gay and I told you about my boyfriend and you said, I never want to meet him again. I said, well, I made that mean that you were rejecting me. You know, I made it mean that you didn't want me in your life and I run away. And I'm sorry that I run away. And I'm sorry that I didn't try to look at it from your perspective, right? I, I never tried to understand it from for how it was for you, right? You just found out that your son, you'd probably had all these visions for, you know, about how my life was going to be, had just told you that it wasn't going to be like that and it was going to be completely different. And in that conversation, like what happened was we created a possibility, right? So I created the possibility with him that we could have a relationship with each other again. And he took it, you know, he took that. And he said, we met each other like a couple of days later. And he said, look, we're going away in a few weeks. 
bring your boyfriend, we're all going away together. And in one conversation, like it all, like the whole thing transformed completely. Wow. And I realized that it was, it was me the whole time. I was stopping that happening because I was waiting for him to fix it. You know, I was waiting for somebody else to fix the situation. And of course, if somebody over there doesn't think that they're the problem, they're never going to fix it, right? And I suppose I just need to caveat this slightly, right? I was lucky that I put that out there for my dad as a possibility and he picked it up and he run with it. But there's people out there who don't get that from their from their families. Do you know what I mean? They don't. There is a, a really high proportion of people who come out who then end up being completely disowned by their families. And I was lucky. I, you know, I thought I had been, but I hadn't. And I could actually go back and do something about it. So I kind of thought, wait, you know, look, that's, you know, I'd sorted that part of my life out. And it was a huge you know, massive weight off my shoulders, really was a massive weight off my shoulders. And I, my partying kind of slowed down, my clubbing slowed down, the drug taking slowed down, you know, all of that kind of stuff got better. My relationship, my family just got better and better and better. But you know what, alcohol was still there. Like alcohol was still the thing that I did most days, you know, after work, a few beers or family gatherings, we'd drink, you know, and I would drink quite strong lager. I'd probably, you know, drink like four, six pints of lager every time I had a drink. It was never going to be one. It was probably never going to be two. It was always going to be three or four. And that kind of went on for, well, that was going on since, you know, from the age that I was able to drink, you know, like every day probably drinking. But I suppose as I moved away from the clubbing and thought that, okay, I've sorted my life out now, right? That going down the pub didn't seem like much of a problem. So, you know, like everybody's doing it, everybody's, everybody's drinking, everybody's kind of doing that thing. And I suppose I didn't, I didn't see it as much of a problem um, until around uh, about 2016. And I was drinking more and more. And I was starting to use credit cards. And I was starting to, you know, rack up debts and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd use credit cards to go out and drink and buy alcohol and all those kind of things. And in 2016, I got made redundant from my job. And then all of a sudden, something that was quite manageable, that seemed quite manageable, even though I was literally trying to just pay my debts off every single month, I was getting paid and paying my debts off and using my credit cards to, to keep going out and keep getting drunk. In 2016, I just couldn't, I couldn't manage that anymore. I got made redundant and all of a sudden I didn't have an income and all that world, all that, all my world kind of came crashing down. Um, I got another job, which was about, you know, it was about a £10,000 salary decrease. Um, and then I realized that I couldn't afford my debts anymore. Um, so I had to basically go to a debt management charity. So over here, you can go, you can go to a debt management charity and say, look, I, I can't afford, I can't afford what's going on at the moment. Can you help me? Um, and they basically write to all the people you owe money to, and they stop the interest and they just do a, do like a spreadsheet with you every year. And so I was in that debt management plan for six years and then I had a mental breakdown. So I had a complete mental breakdown. I couldn't manage my finances. I had to give my car back. Like I said, I was in this debt management plan and everything just became unmanageable, just completely, completely unmanageable. And I just drank. I drank more when I didn't have any money 
when I didn't have a job, when I was in a men- having a mental breakdown, than any time I think in my life. You know, I was just drinking constantly. And I did try and go to counselling at one point, and they said, well, if you just stop drinking, you'll be able to sort your finances out. And I was like, oh, thanks, you know, like, <laughs> thanks for letting me know. Like, I, I kind of hadn't realised that. And and then I thought the only way to go was to go to AA. I thought, that's it. Like, I have to go to AA. I've completely failed. Like, I thought that, you know, I thought that it was bad enough that I had to deal with all that crap when I was like 10, 11, 12. Then, then again, when I was like 21 and thought it was all sorted. And now at like 30, 35, 40, I'm, it's happening again. I've got something else that's wrong. And I failed. You know, I've completely failed. And I'm going to have to go to AA. I'm going to have to stand up every week. I'm going to have to say that I'm, you know, that I'm powerless and that I'm an alcoholic and that I can't manage my life that's going to be it forever. And, you know, that was just, it was such a confronting thought to have to, it was bad enough coming out as gay, but to come out as an alcoholic, that was just like unthinkable, right? That was totally unthinkable. I just, you know, especially for my family being Irish and all being big drinkers, for me being the one that couldn't actually cope and couldn't control his drinking, like that was a, that was a big thing. And then, of course, I found this naked mind. So um, I'd actually gone on a big drinking. No, well, actually, before that, I kind of I'd started rebuilding my life. Right. I had the year of the breakdown and then I went back into work. I thought you just have to you just have to get your life going. You just have to you just have to get things started again. And I worked hard to get my life going again. I'd spent three years working in a supermarket. I got everything kind of I was earning more again, but even though I was earning more, nothing was getting paid off of my debt. Like nothing was happening. One night I got completely drunk and had an argument with my partner. And he left that day. When I woke up in the morning, I got on Google and I found you. And that day, that next, well, that exact day, I think I went, I got this naked mind on audio and downloaded it and that was it you started reading that book to me and that was the beginning of me stopping drinking right and I just thought the first thing that I heard that resonated the most was that I wasn't an alcoholic you know and I always say to people as soon as I found out I wasn't an alcoholic I could stop drinking (laughs) it's the irony of it right it's someone says to you you're an alcoholic it frightens the hell out of you and you just want to keep drinking when when I found out that I wasn't, I was like, thank God for that. You know, it was just such a weight off that I hadn't failed, that I hadn't got it wrong. Yeah. And so I suppose the biggest shift for me has been that now I'm nearly I'm nearly four years alcohol free. I, I will be first of August this year. I'll be four years alcohol free. And from the point where you started reading that book to me, I was still in the debt management program. I had all my debts. I wasn't really paying them off. And in the last four and a half, in the last three and a half years, I've cleared the debt management plan. Um, I don't owe anybody any money. And I'm just about to um, sign the documents to buy my first property. Mm-hmm. And that just that was just never going to happen if I carried on drinking. There was just no way that it there's no way that it could have happened. It just couldn't have, it couldn't have happened. So I'm so thankful that I kind of 
that I Googled that day. And I don't know how you turned up that day, to be honest, because I Googled loads of other days as well. <laughs> you know, I tried the counselor and I tried, I reached out to the AA people. I just didn't want to go. And that day, just, just that one Google and it came up and I thought, well, I'll just try anything, you know, and thank God I did because it, it changed my whole life, just stopping drinking. But it's amazing. I didn't think that I had such a problem with alcohol, right? But I think when you look back on your life, you realize how much how much built up trauma you have all the way through, you know, from that young age of thinking to myself, OK, you feel a little bit different, but you can see see one of your family members a little bit ahead of you going through the same thing that you th same direction you think you want to go in. But look how it's going for them. Like, you don't look like it's going too great for them, right? So is that really where you want to go? Do you really want to go down that road? Do you really want to have to do all of that stuff? You know, and to have to fight to be who you are. Do you know what I mean? Like most people don't have to do that. They just you know, finish school, meet their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever and get engaged and all the family's happy and 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 then there's a baby and then everyone's happy, right? And And it just doesn't happen like that when you come out. It just doesn't happen there you know like you don't have that moment where you have a child so you don't necessarily feel that time that you have to grow up you know there isn't a, there isn't all of a sudden a responsibility that comes along that you have to you know I can't go out all night now because I've got this baby to look after or whatever we don't have that so we kind of live in a Peter Pan syndrome that's what I call it like the Peter Pan syndrome that we never feel like we're growing up really that we're kind of in this kind of limbo world and the thing about the gay scene is it it happens at night it happens in bars it happens in clubs and normally most of them have like blacked out windows they're changing right but you know back in the day they were all kind of blacked out windows so that people couldn't see in they couldn't see who's in them because being out it was really a big thing as well so to kind of go through all of that you don't realize how traumatic it actually was until until you get to a certain age and you look back you know when I look back now I think damn look at all the stuff that you had to go through do you know what I mean all the all the stuff to just get where you are now right and I know people have stuff that they got to get through they have everybody does I just think it's it's great that things are changing now and they haven't changed completely they they it's still difficult for people to come out. It's still difficult for, to be accepted, you know, but they've moved on from when, you know, from the 19, from the 90s when I was coming out. Wow. I just think about that idea of like, you know, when you think about a traumatic response, like what could be more psychologically traumatic than to feel that you're not accepted for something you can't change? Mm. And the thing that happens when you come out is that you then you then actually start to suffer with something called hypervigilance. So you are constantly aware of other people around you, what they may think about you being gay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like it was strange. Like I, <laughs> I used to like have Ralph Lauren shirts on and chinos and a nice pair of shoes. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I, you know, went out in the gay scene and it started to be more like lycra black tops and, you know, like different clothes. But people would then obviously start to spot that you were you were gay because you look different, right? And then you've got to start being aware of, okay, where am I going now? What kind of area is that? What kind of people live there? Do you know what I mean? 
are they going to be homophobic what part of london am i in you know like can i mention my boyfriend can i say this can i say that and you become so controlling of your all your actions because you don't want to you don't want to stand out and you definitely don't want to get hurt right and it and and they are two real risks that you have that you just don't know who you, i've i've sp- i've been talking to people in a bar and we've been getting on great and i just said oh my boyfriend and the next minute the atmosphere changes i can i can see that these people from one minute to the next have become almost openly hostile towards me just because i said my boyfriend you know and it's it's bizarre and I suppose we shouldn't have to, but we just come to terms with it and we just start to realise that we can do certain things and we can't do other things. And that's why the kind of gay community and the gay bars and everything are so important, because that's where you can go when you where you feel absolutely safe. You know, everybody around me is is holding their boyfriend's hand or, you know, or kissing their boyfriend. But even today, I mean, I'm for, coming up to 47 I wouldn't walk down the high street holding my partner's hand. I wouldn't kiss him in public. You know, we've been together nearly 20 years and I wouldn't do any of those things just because I'm concerned for our safety. You know, I'm just concerned about what other people might do, you know, and that's not a consideration a lot of people have to have when they're just walking down the street with their other half, you know, like, can I, can I reach out and hold their hand? But I just wouldn't do it. Maybe if I was in central London walking down, you know, like Old Compton Street in the middle of Soho, then, yeah, OK, maybe I'm going to do it there, but I'm not going to do it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it's it's all of that stuff, you know, and then thinking, OK, I've come out now. And what happens when I go back to Ireland? You know, what happens when I go back there and all the people who know me for having all the girlfriends and stuff? What are they going to think? You know, and you. You end up keep having to come out all your whole life. Like you come out, you don't just come out once. You just keep coming out, keep coming out, keep coming out. And interestingly, there's something that I read recently is even like as you get into your older years and you have to think about retirement villages and all of those kind of things, then you have to come out again. (laughs) You have to people then you have they know that you're gay again and then you're old and then you're vulnerable again. Right. And. So it's kind of it's all the way through your life from from a very young age until maybe the end of your life that you're you're kind of left in a vulnerable position. And that's quite hard to deal with. And I think that was a lot of probably my drinking as well was just trying to manage that, you know, just trying to blot it out, I suppose. I think I've got to an age now where I don't care. But when you're younger, you care a lot, care a lot about what other people think. And even if you don't care, like consciously, there's so much inside that still is triggered, right? Like that's because that's how trauma works. It's like you can heal what's conscious, but there's, there's so much reactivity just because it's been a factor for so long, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I did lots of work on myself and the funny thing is when, I was talking earlier when I did Landmark, you know, they said to you, they said at one point, like, pick the thing in your life you have the least control over. Right? I picked cigarettes and I walked out of that room and I didn't smoke for three years. Right. But I had loads of opportunity to pick alcohol and I never did. <laughs> I never picked alcohol because it just, you know, it just didn't seem like 
something that I wanted to deal with. You know, everyone's doing it. It's fun. I think that's the problem with alcohol is that, you know, when I stopped taking drugs, it was kind of like, well, okay, that's fair enough because they are illegal, right? And they're bad for you and people have died from them, you know, and you know, and that's why the government stops you doing it, right? So so my life must be better now that I'm not doing those those things. You know, so alcohol must still be okay. It must be all right for me to carry on doing alcohol because everybody else is doing it. And I suppose you don't realise the level of which you're covering stuff up. You just don't realise that that's there. But the thing is, since I've stopped drinking... And, you know, I would reach for alcohol for anything, you know. And I, I mean, I had the I had the biggest FU button in the world. I would literally press it and like keep my finger on it and hold my finger there and see how long I could go and get away with things and bring it to the, you know, to the very ninth degree. Like, will I get away? We're going to work tomorrow. And I would, I'd turn up, you know, really, really, really hung over. But I'd always, I could press that button for a long time. Yeah, to be able to say, well, I'm not going to press the button anymore. I'm not going to press the button. I'm just going to I'm just going to try and deal with this. I'm just going to try and get through it without having to without having to do that and being able to just kind of be with your emotions and be with how you feel. It's a different experience. But I knew that when I decided that I needed to do something about my relationship with alcohol I wanted there to be a complete different not a different version of me but I wanted it to be a different experience of being me like I've done all of that I've done the clubs I've done the drugs I've done the alcohol I've done the drag queen I did the makeup I've done do you know what I mean like I've done all that stuff I want to do something completely different and the experience of not drinking allows you to have that different experience it allows you to kind of get in touch with yourself and I'm not saying that there isn't still things there right I'm sure there are still gremlins and little things lurking that I probably haven't even thought about yet and they're, and they're still going to come up at some point but at least I feel more equipped to deal with them you know I know that emotions will come up but they'll also go away um, and that I am able to deal with them you know one thing that happened recently was my best friend died um, we've been friends for 25 years and I just thought to be able to be fully present to the amount of upset that's going on when you lose somebody right is is how you honor them the most like the way I used to deal with stuff would be you know someone's died I can't deal with it go get drunk and now when someone passes and it was hard you know it was a good couple of months where I couldn't do much and I just had to sit with it and just had to go through it you know and I got to the other side of it and the and the thing that I realized was that that kind of that kind of stuff you could sit you could push down for years and years right but I I got through it and obviously I miss my friend but at least I've honoured her memory and I've honoured our friendship by feeling those things. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to be able to acknowledge that we just need to feel our emotions. We need to feel what we're going through. You know, yeah, you can you can shortcut it and you can switch it off and you can try and kill it and deaden it and numb it. But it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't leave. It doesn't, you know, it's just sitting there waiting to one day be resolved you know it's just all building up in the background yeah yeah wow it's beautiful I love what you said about it's how to honor them because I think grief is the other side of love you know yeah wow that's really cool yeah we've got to have we've got to try we've got to have both things right 
we can't always be happy and that's what I was trying to do you know with the drugs and alcohol I was just trying to be happy all the time and you just can't be it's just not real you know we can't be happy all the time it's exhausting trying to be happy all the time right <laughs> you need to have some downtime you need to have some sad time you need to have some time to process things as well not just move on to the next fun thing that you want to do right totally true well this has been amazing john just so great so let me ask you the questions to finish up with which is um so you've you've since become a coach and where can people find you should they want to learn more about you or your coaching or get coached by you yeah so my coaching practice is called the teetotal coach and that's spelled the capital T total coach. Um, and you can get me at uh, the teetotalcoach.com or you can find me on Instagram as the teetotal coach or on Facebook, the teetotal coach. Um, or you can also find me and some of the other coaches who are uh, working together at Living Proud AF. Um, and that's Living Proud AF on Instagram and our website's livingproudaf.com. Love that such a great such a great um partnership uh and then if you were going to go back john to um like a version of you that felt really stuck and maybe i loved how you said you had to come out again as an alcoholic and the fear of that and the resistance to that and you were going to tell them about what life is like now what would you say like don't wait like mm. I just waited too long to want to deal with it, right? I just, it was there for such a long time, like for years and years, I knew that I was drinking too much, but I just didn't want to face it. I just didn't want to deal with it. And I'm not saying I left it too long, right? I, I did it when I did it and there's no regrets. I've done what I've done and now I've stopped drinking. But if I could have just said to myself, you know, you could take this on, way earlier and it's much easier than you think you know it's not as difficult as you think and knowing now that there's other routes other than AA or you know other conventional 12-step programs all the rest of it then I probably would have done it much earlier and now I, I see this like as a, as a personal development journey it's not just about drinking like stopping drinking alcohol right it's about much more than that as you kind of start to realize that you've, you know, you've pushed so much down and you've still got to, you, you've still got time to deal with it now, you know, and I go back and tell myself, just take it really slowly. Just don't beat yourself up. You're okay. You will get through this and you're going to get out the other side. Okay. So amazing. Well, thank you so much, John. It's, it's been really a pleasure to hear your story and have you on. I just so much appreciate your time. Thanks, Sunny. Be lovely spending time with you and you know I always say to you it's so bizarre to have had you like reading this naked mind into my ear like all that you know those three and a half years ago and then to actually be sitting here doing a podcast with you is just like oh <laughs> from this side too because to be writing that book or speaking it out loud into a silent room and then to actually meet people who've read it super I feel yeah. the same it's really cool it's awesome thanks so much Annie thank you so much for listening to this episode if you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is 
Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. Thank you.